0: And my father spoke up against Mao's policies. He was arrested, tortured, driven insane. And my mother was under tremendous pressure to denounce my father. She refused. And my mother was made to kneel on broken glass. Um, she was paraded in the streets where children spat at her and threw stones at her. The desire to write never left me. So in the following years, when I was working as a peasant, and as a barefoot doctor, as a steelworker and an electrician, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen.
1: Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Hyung Chang. Her first book, *Wild Swans*, has sold over 15 million copies worldwide. The U.S. diplomat George Kennan described the Gulag Archipelago. He said. This is the greatest and most powerful single indictment of a political regime ever to be leveled in modern times. And when I read that quote, I realized that this is exactly how I describe your books, um, Wild Swans, obviously, but also your biography of Mao, titled Mao, The Unknown Story, both of which we'll talk about today. Uh, It is a true honor to speak with you.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So we will get it to Mao and his atrocities in a second, but let us begin by... Would you mind laying the scene for us? What was it like? You grew up under in China under Mao. Let's begin there. What was it like as you as you started to grow up during this time?
0: I was born in China in Sichuan in 1952. So I grew up under Mao. Um, when I was a child, I led quite a privileged life because both my parents were communist officials. And we lived in this compound with, um, um, uh, you know, servants, uh, cooks, drivers. It was a very class-ridden society, and I grew up so much taking um, class and privilege for granted that when I first came to Britain, I thought Britain was wonderfully classless. (laughs) And Of course, my views were slightly modified over the years. Um, And then... In 1966, when I was 14, Mao launched his cultural revolution, which was his great purge. And my father spoke up against Mao's policies. Um, So as a result, he was arrested, tortured, driven insane. He was exiled to a camp and died um, tragically and prematurely. And my mother was under tremendous pressure to denounce my father. She refused. As a result, she went through over a hundred of these ghastly denunciation meetings, which were everyday features in China at the time. And basically, the victims were put on the stage, and their arms were ferociously twisted to the back, and their heads were pushed down, um, they were kicked and beaten. And um, my mother was made, once made to kneel on broken glass. Um, she was paraded in the streets where children spat at her and threw stones at her. Um, but she survived. And today, she still lives in Chengdu, age 92. My family was scattered, and I was exiled to the edge of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant and then as a barefoot doctor, which was a doctor basically without any training because Mao had said, the more books you read, the more stupid you become. So schools were closed, you know, books were burned. Um, I mean, China was literally a cultural desert without books, cinemas, theaters, museums, for 10 years. Um, And um, then I became an electrician. And again, there was no training. So I had five electric shocks in one month. Um, And then in 1973, mm, partly after Nixon's visit to China, mm, I mean, but more more also because for the internal um, political reasons. And universities began to reopen, and I was able to get into Sichuan University to learn English. Uh, but, you know, our teachers had never seen foreigners themselves, because China had been closed to the outside world after the Communists took power in 1949. So our textbooks were written by these teachers um, who'd never been abroad. I remember the first lesson was long live Chairman Mao. (laughs) And the second lesson was greetings. Um, Because the Chinese in those years, when we bumped into each other, and we said, which means, where are you going? Have you eaten? So those were the English greetings I learned. So when I first came (laughs) to London, I used to go around and ask people where they were going and whether they had eaten. Um, Well, the only foreigners I had um, spoken to were some sailors in a port in South China where we as English language students were sent to practice our English. So, um, and that was up when I was 23. Um, but, um, I mean, of course, we, we, we were at the port eagerly waiting for our sailors, and we had no idea what must be on their minds and uh, how different this must be from the expectation of a port life. In 1976, Mao died, and China began to change. And in 1978, um, I there was a national exam to to select the people to go abroad for the first time under communist rule. Going abroad was based on. Um, on an academic mm-hmm. basis. And so I did very well at the exam, so I became one of the first 14 people to come to Britain. And I, as far as I know, I was the first person to get out of Sichuan province, a province then of 90 million people mm-hmm. to come and study in the West. So when I got my doctorate in linguistics, at the University of York in 1982, um, I became the first person from communist China ever to get a doctorate from a British university. So, okay, so I was um, in Britain and for 10 years, I didn't want to think about the past um, because it was too painful and my, my father died, my grandmother who brought us up died And uh, there was two, you know, I just, I just wanted to spend time enjoying the West. Um, I had actually always wanted to be a writer. Um, When I was a child, I loved writing. Um, But when, when I was growing up under Mao, it was impossible um, to dream of even become a writer because nearly all writers were condemned, you know, sent to the Gulag, um, driven to suicide, or some were even executed. I mean, even writing for oneself was dangerous. Um, I wrote my first poem when I was 16, uh, on the 16th birthday in 1978. Uh, I was lying in bed polishing my poem when I heard the door banging and some red guards had come to raid our flat. And if they had seen my poem, I would get into trouble and my family would get into trouble. So I had to quickly rush to the bathroom to tear up my poem and flush it down the toilet. And so that ended my first venture in writing. But the desire to write never left me. So in the following years, when I was working as a peasant and as a barefoot doctor, as a steel worker and electrician, and when I was spreading manure on the paddy fields and um, um, checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen. Um, but I couldn't write in China, when I came to Britain I for 10 years, I didn't want to write. And then my mother came to stay with me in 1988. And first time, she told me the stories of, um, of her life and stories of my grandmother. And then while I was listening to my mother, um, I thought I, I must write all this down. And then I realized how much I wanted to be a writer and how much I had always wanted to be a writer. And so um, I went, um, after my mother left, I transcribed the tapes she left for me, 60 hours of tape recordings. And then I wrote Wild Swans, um, which was published in 1991 first. Um, and I became a writer.
1: Yes. And um, I mean, that saying you became a writer is understating it. The, the global impact of uh, Wild Swans has been um, tremendous. And in fact, I, you know I, um, a former guest of mine, uh, Sarah Payne, recommended it to me and I read it. And it, it's, the, it's the most moving book I've ever read. It's, it's truly tremendous. Let me begin by asking what it was like growing up there in terms of the psychology of living in a totalitarian system. You mentioned in the book that until very late, you could not even bring yourself to question Mao, despite seeing the consequences of his policies and the cult of personality that was there. Um, t- tell me about the psychology of living in a system like that.
0: Well, when I was growing up in China, um, and, you know, we were all subject to intense brainwashing and indoctrination. Uh, when we were children, Mao, was we were told, you know, Ma, sorry, Mao was like our god. And um, if we wanted to say what I say is true, we would say I swear to Chairman Mao. Mm-hmm. So Mao was, uh, Mao had um, been given this godlike status. Yeah. Um, so, and also at the same time, we could see um, how dangerous it was to question Mao. You know, these, in China, there were these periodical, political campaigns, and many people were victimized. And the biggest crime was to question Mao. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father, in the Cultural Revolution, suffered tremendously. Um, and it was also because he so questioned Mao. So when I wrote my poem when I was 16 years old, I had already um, started to doubt and to dread the society I was in. And we were always told, you know, socialist China was paradise on earth. And I I thought on that day, actually, um, if this is a paradise, what then is hell? Because my parents were away being detained. I'm... Um, um, my grandmother was weeping next door because she's heard you know these ghastly things that were being done to my mother. Um, so I questioned the society, but Mao never entered my mind, and he was beyond questioning. You know, this may be difficult for people to to understand, maybe, I mean, in the West. Um, But in China, in those days, um, there were two most important things that enabled this brainwashing. One is the complete isolation of the society from the outside world, from alternative information, and from any other information. Even parents never told the children, you know, things that were different from the party line because they were worried about the future of their children and they were worried that if children blabbed, it would be disastrous for the children as well as for the family. Um, So no alternative information. And the other is terror, this intense terror, um, which um, really scared people into suppressing any unorthodox thoughts. Um, so I was living in that kind of society, and it took me a long time to question Mao. Um, since my birthday, 16th birthday thought in 1968, um, for many years, I blamed what was happening in China to Madame Mao and to the so-called Gang of Four, which were basically assistants of Mao's. Um, But I never dared to question Mao. Um, And then I remember very well, 1976, I had learned a little English, and a friend showed me a copy of Newsweek, and there was an article about Mao, and there were two little pictures with the caption, Madam Mao is Mao's eyes, ears, and mouth. And suddenly, you know, Mao's name was spelled out for me. And I suddenly realized, of course, it was Mao. You know, without Mao, none of this could have happened. And Mao was responsible. And, you know, I'm an intelligent person, but it took me eight years, even from the moment I said to myself, I dislike the society, to the moment that I felt Mao was responsible.
1: You mentioned that your father uh, was uh, purged because of his criticism uh, of the government at the time. And in fact, your father's story uh, through the book is you know, a sort of tragic tale. That, um, But the, uh, what I found uh, interesting was that the way he criticized the party mm-hmm. was to go through the official mechanism. He wrote a letter to Mao Which suggests that he even then still believed that sort of the mechanism of the party worked and then you, you know, it would be imagining like somebody has a problem with North Korean government today and he then writes a letter to Kim Jong-un, you know, which is obviously you're going to get in in trouble for that. So um, uh, tell me about how your father thought about that and in retrospect, how should a high official like your fa- your father was the governor of uh, Sichuan Province, which you said ninety million people
0: wasn't a governor. Sorry, oh. my father was the governor of a region oh, okay. in, in uh, initially, and then by the time of the uh, Cultural Revolution um, in nineteen sixty six, he was the de- head of a department. Oh, I see. Uh, of the of the Sichuan. Well, party, government, whatever they were, yeah. the same. A high official. A high official.
1: What what should he have done when he realized things were going?
0: Well, there was nothing one could do. I mean, if you try to say your spell out your thoughts to uh, other people, you would be instantly denounced and instantly, uh, you know, probably executed. I mean, nobody was allowed to say anything against Mao. Um, my father, and and the theoretically, in the charter of the Communist Party, a party member had the right to write to the leadership. So my father was using that as as the kind of theoretically permitted way to voice his dissent. Um, so that's why he wrote to Mao. And in any case, the, all these things. The atrocities, the violence. I mean, only Mao could stop them. Um, so writing to Mao was the, was the only way. Um, was the only way he could express his opinion, and of course, he also uh, said something, you know, in the context of the denunciation meetings. But if there were not, um, there were outbursts at denunciation meetings right. rather than his well thought out sure. expression of dissent.
1: So th- this is uh, this is something I thought was um, confusing when reading accounts about the Cultural Revolution is. China is a society, you, you know, they they've rebelled in the past, they rebelled against the emperors, they rebelled against the Japanese occupation, they, the, the nationalists were in, uh, at one point in charge of lots of part, parts of China, the communists rebelled against them. How was Mao able to instill a regime where that became unthinkable? Uh, despite the fact that it was an incredibly chaotic and destabilizing time how did the Chinese which as you have a great sense of history how would they allow this to happen
0: well that's a very good question that's that is the key of a, a communist society of a totalitarian society is the control the control the organization i mean neither the emperors nor any other rulers under the the nationalist under Chiang Kai-shek, was China so thoroughly organized down to the grassroots, controlled by layers of party organizations. Um, it um, It was totally thorough. That's why the 20th century totalitarianism was very different from the previous authoritarianism. I mean, the key was the control is that it this total control um, of a society i mean the power highly concentrated at the very top the one person
1: the thing that's really interesting is mao is obviously a person who doesn't understand economics and we'll talk about that greatly forward and the disastrous consequences it had because of his um, uh, c- complete ignorance uh, when it came to um, you know economics and industry and things like that but what he did seem to have an incredible sense for, and Stalin and other totalitarian leaders as well, is the psychology of people and how to organize a society that has 800 million people, how to organize it so that, you know, every society has petty, sadistic, uh, arrogant, uh, and cowardly people and how to organize them so that they're elevated and you use them to your advantage so that there is no nook and cranny in the entire society where a single person can be a, have a dissenting voice or even have an independent life. Maybe you can talk about the commune life and the way in which... How, how can you possibly have a society of 800 million people where each person is under such strict totalitarian control? How, how is that even possible?
0: The thing is that in the Cultural Revolution, for example, Mao used the, the young people and used the, the bad things in their nature. They're prone to violence, um, de- destructive, um, you know, sadistic. I mean, any society, there were these people, but they were given license to indulge their bad instincts in the Cultural Revolution. Now, this took place for a couple of years in the Cultural Revolution. Then Mao reined them in. You, by using the army, and the Red Guards, the former Red Guards, particularly the most militant, most aggressive, most sadistic and violent ones, were dispersed, and they were sent to the villages, sent to the mountains. I mean, the, disobeyed, the dis- disobedient ones were condemned themselves. I mean, they became the targets of the second round of purges, so to speak. And all the time, Mao made sure that the barrel of the gun was in his hand, Mm -hmm. the army. So he always needed this person to control the army for him, to make sure he could wreak havoc and maintain control. And he always used the Biao until... 1970. Uh, Lin Biao was completely cynical. Um, he would come to Mao's rescue when there was a dissent from Mao's other colleagues, like during the famine and when Mao started the, the Cultural Revolution. And until the day that he fell out with Mao, um, which was why Mao was suddenly a bit lost because he lost his, his, the arm with which he controlled the army. And, and, that, and so that's why in 1972, after Lin Biao died, trying to flee to, out of China, and things suddenly became better. And then because the Mao had to rely on another person to control the army for him, and this other person was Deng Xiaoping. And then suddenly the universities began to reopen. Things were much better from 1972.
1: Yeah, and and by the way, this is a great instance of, as soon as Mao dies, the Gang of Four is rounded up and arrested and the Cultural Revolution stops. So, which goes to show you that this was Mao's doing. This is also um, an interesting example where, you know, you have these cases where there's Stalin in Russia or Mao in China, where it, when the tyrant dies, you know, the system automatically improves because nobody else is as crazy as that guy. What does this show us about uh, if Kim Jong-un died? Would we, should we expect a sort of reversion to a more sane set of things? Again and again, we see tyrants die and things are not as bad as they used to be.
0: Well, I haven't studied North Korea, so I don't know the inner workings right. of the regime. I mean, in that sort of a st- Stalinist society, really, so much depends right. depends depends on one person. I mean, the Kim dynasty; they have arranged their kind of succession the The first king uh, song died, and his son succeeded, and the grandson then succeeded. Oh. Now it seems that the grandson it has begun to look into a succession of him by grooming perhaps i don't know his daughter or someone close close to him i mean stalin um didn't couldn't do that couldn't do the family dynasty thing um, i think partly because his children were not like the kim children i mean mao um, also i mean mao basically he only cared about how he could enjoy life while he was alive indulging his his desires which was mainly power um, and he didn't care about um, um, what 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 comes after him. I mean, he was completely material materialistic, you know, in that philosophical way, in that sort of way. Sorry. For example, when he was in Russia, in Moscow, he when he visited Lenin's tomb, he said. It's all very well, you know, we are visiting Lenin's tomb, but Lenin can't feel anything. He's dead, so it doesn't matter. It means nothing to Lenin. Um, so you, you know, Mao, when he died, he didn't leave a well structured. He didn't even sort of didn't even care about his own legacy.
1: Well, I, I thought the entire purpose of the Cultural Revolution was that he was concerned that his, because of the Great Leap Forward, that his his legacy would be destroyed in the way that Khrushchev denounced Stalin, and therefore that, that was the entire point of the Cultural Revolution was to protect his legacy.
0: Um, that may be a factor, but the main factor was Mao's policy that had led to the great famine of nearly, you know, around 40 million deaths of the people uh, was so unpopular that his number two, Liu Shaoqi, then spoke up against him. Again, there was no way even for Mao's number two to topple him and because basically, you know, uh, under this tyrant, his colleagues couldn't get organized. Um, to which was necessary to topple him, they couldn't lay their hands on the army, which was controlled by Lin Biao. So, what Liu Shaoqi did was that in January 1962, um, when Mao had wanted to continue his policy of exporting food in exchange for arms industries to build, in order for him to build a superpower so he could dominate the world. And Liu wanted to stop that. And he used this occasion of a party congress to speak to the 7,000 party officials in that conference hall. And my father was in there. I mean, so these party officials were, you know, spread all over over China. They were, the vast, vast majority of them were against Mao's policies that had led to the famine. And um, so they suddenly found Liu Shaoqi as their champion. And so together, they managed to stop Mao's policies, which was how the famine was stopped from 1962. Um, Mao was furious. He he didn't like being thwarted and being ambushed, which he called the ambush. This was why he launched the Cultural Revolution in 1966, to punish Liu Xiaoqi and the party officials. Um, I mean, so that's how this... Great purge took place. For Mao, it was much less of a... It was calculated because he wanted to have his way, he wanted to purge these people. But there was also the gut feeling of revenge, and he wanted revenge on his number two who died in the most appalling way in the Cultural Revolution.
1: So uh, I'm sorry if this question sounds naive, but if you have somebody like Lu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping and these other party officials who are seeing what is happening and in the case of Lu Xiaoxi, he was denounced before he was um, before he was officially purged uh, and removed from power, right? So th- there was a time when he knew he was going to be purged, but he was still in power. Uh, it's confusing from the outside of why at that time, you don't um, if you can't control the army because Lin Bao is in control of it at, at that point, you don't I don't know. Try to tell the people what is actually happening. Yeah. Go to the people's daily and say, "Here, you got to publish this article about what is that, what Mao is actually like." Go to the, all the communist officials, organize a coup. Why didn't that happen?
0: Well, it did happen. Well, in the, in the Mao biography, there well, um, I have a couple of chapters um, about Liu Shaoqi. Exactly what you were suggesting, what he should have done. I mean, I mean, but I'm going to expand it in my next book. Um, basically. Liu Shaoqi knew Mao was going to purge him in 1962 after the Congress, because he ambushed Mao. And so he had started to build his own power base, first of all, by stopping the famine, making himself popular among the party officials, because only they mattered. The ordinary people were too far away from power. And so Liu Shaoqi became very popular. In 1965, a few years later, when Mao tried to purge Liu Shaoqi, he found he couldn't do it. I mean, Liu Shaoqi had been powerful enough to put up a resistance. I mean, there was a lot of, um, I mean, Mao did this horse trading with Lin Biao And so Lin Biao spoke, you know, very forcefully in support of Mao. Um, So there was all that going on. And why um, Liu Shaoqi was already, um, sorry, then Mao used the Red Guards to create such violence and terror in China from 1966, to basically 19, uh, for a few months before he even mentioned Liu Shaoqi's name, as you said. But Liu Xiaoqi was already under house arrest. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just he didn't make it public. So Mao first of all created this gigantic um, upheaval in China um, in, order to, in order to create the kind of terror that people would only obey him not Liu Shaoqi, not even the party, but only him. That's how he operated. Um, So that's why in the Cultural Revolution, his first victims were school teachers. You know, I was in a secondary school in China. I saw how the teachers were being abused, beaten up, denounced, driven to suicide, and so on. When Mao actually... Didn't even dislike teachers. I mean, he said, for example, to Edgar Snow that um, he'd like to be known as a great teacher or whatever. He was a school teacher in his youth, and he didn't even care. He didn't care about them, and but he just used them because the teachers were the obvious target to excite, to arouse. The the um the passion the violence the atrocities in the young Red Guards, um and so so that's how he he used them as a victim. In order to rouse the victimizers, which were the schoolchildren, yeah. um that's how he he maneuvered. He spent quite a few years, um before he Liu Xiaoqi was. Um, before the atmosphere was ripe for him to be able to purge Liu.
1: So uh, maybe for context, it'll be helpful first to start talking about the Great Leap Forward. The number you gave was uh, around 40 million people. And this, this becomes a statistic for people. You just think, oh, 40 million people died, whatever, it's a number. Um, I, I want to make it concrete for people what it, how much tragedy and suffering is involved In just a single person dying for starvation. Can you talk about the months-long agonizing process of what starvation is, where you see it happening to you, your family, your children, your spouse, your village, uh, and what peasant life was like during during the Great Leap Forward?
0: Well, during the Great Leap Forward, my family was among the privileged, so I personally didn't starve. But... There was a lot of starvation around us. Um, for example, I remember when I went to school. I was um, I was eight. Uh, I was eight, nine. You know, when I went to school, one one day I was munching a steamed bread, and a, a young lad, a child, a boy, darted over and snatched the bread from my mouth and I then he stuffed those into his mouth and disappeared and then afterwards I told when I, I told my father my father was very sad and he sort of he touched my head and said you know you are very lucky you know other children are starving and another thing that happened near home was our our maid, our domestic help, who'd come from a village and her family had been classified as a landlord, which was one one of the categories of the desirables destined for discrimination um, and um, horrible treatment. And um, I remember very well one day she, 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 after a visit to her family, she came back and um, she was weeping. And I remember we lived in this courtyard and she had so much flood, floods of tears that the frogs that were actually thriving in the courtyard were leaping up and down. So that was in my memory as a child. And uh, my grandmother, with whom she was very close, uh, was sitting in the mosquito net and also crying and said, the communists are good, except all these people are dead. I mean, so I, I was because that this was so much against my indoctrination about the communists. That's one of the few things I heard that made me really scared. And um, and then and before she, um, her whole family died. In fact, before that, her mother came to see her to report the news that her father. And um, the brothers or something had died, and her mother, as soon as she came into the house, she threw herself on the on the ground and called out to my mother, and said, "You know, thank you, you know, for having saved my daughter. Otherwise, you know, they, um, she would have been dead." I mean, after soon after the mother went back, she died herself. But when she came, she was already like a skeleton, you know, as though any wind yeah. could blow her away. It's just unter- terrible. And the one thing that made my father speak up during the Cultural Revolution, which is only a few years later, was um, he felt so guilty. Yeah. And he volunteered to go to stay in a village. And um, and And then he saw these horrible things, which I didn't see. I mean, he and and one day a man was sort of walking on the ridges of the paddy fields um unsteadily. and suddenly he disappeared. And my father rushed over, and this man um had had died. Um, it's just like that. And just my father, just for his some months of living in in there. Uh, in the village he was he came back um very seriously famished and suffering from this illness called enema which was because of lack of food um and um oh yes and my even my family and we all and we all drank this this little thing this little seed that fed on urine. I remember we all had to collect urine. We don't pour, throw away our urine, we collect the urine in order to grow this seed, which was supposed to have a lot of um, um, vitamin or a lot of some, some nutrition that could sustain people. And I remember how revolting the taste was. I mean we I didn't suffer much because my family put all our food together, and the adults were starving. I knew my mother, my father, and my particular my grandmother, um in order for for us children um not not to starve. And also now, today, if you read, if you see the memoirs of China's super riches, I mean, I think most of them. Had memory of the of my generation of the generation who had lived in the countryside. They all um, remembered being hungry. Yeah. They as as children when how hungry they were in the villages, mm-hmm. and that that sort of was partly what gave them the impetus to to change.
1: Mm. Oh, you, while we're on this, let me just ask you about this before we return to the Great Leap Forward. Now that you've mentioned it, mm-hmm. so. Xi Jinping actually had a very similar experience to you in that his father is also a high communist official. He also gets denounced and purged. Xi Jinping is also has to go through these denunciation meetings, and then he has to work as a peasant. Um, and in fact, there's a story where he tries to come back, but his mother, uh, to get a meal from his family, but is supposed to be in exile, but his mother then chases them away and denounces him. And you know, so it's like gruesome stuff, right? And then when he gives these speeches, he talks about, we need to return to Marxism, Leninism, and Mao Zedong thought. How is it possible that somebody who has gone through your experience can still have any sort of sympathy left for Mao or Marxism Leninism. I, I actually don't understand. I'm, I'm well, trying to understand. I'm
0: afraid I, I don't understand either. I mean don't fully understand. There was, and, I mean everybody is different. Um, a lot of people had similar experiences um, and they still, um, would Sam Mao's praise um, and wanted to return to the Mao era. I think only you know, not seriously returned to Mao Europe, but they were dreamed of the, perhaps, the tied you know, the control or something um, of the Mao Europe, but not really. I mean, well, everybody was different, but, I mean, there were more indoctrinated people than others under the same indoctrination system. I mean, maybe he was just not... He was just um, more thoroughly indoctrinated, and there were many reasons, and among the communist officials whose parents suffered, the children of, um, a lot of them regard identify Mao with the rule of the Communist Party. Um, and they, do, they don't want the Communist Party to be discredited. So because they are the beneficiaries. Of of communist rule, I mean, in the, um, This is not mis- not necessarily she, he, um, but uh, but in, in a more general sense, because I haven't studied uh, Xi. I, again, I don't know the inner workings of the of the uh, of the regime, um, but I think a lot of children of the, commun- the old communists, in spite of the sufferings from um, their parents, they still want China to be under this one-party dictatorship. And I think one reason now is this made them a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, all the corruptions, or the, you know, whatever, if you, are, if you are associated with the regime, you stood to gain, you stand to gain. So I think that that is one very important reason. Which would not they would not have all the privileges if the party ended its its one party dictatorship.
1: Yeah, which and you know in no other society is a tyrant like Mao still respected by the current regime. With Germany, nobody's nobody is you know yearning for the days of Hitler. Uh, there's a few people in Russia, for example, Stalinism is uh, because of Putin's um, uh, changing of the curriculum, but it, it's not a common thing. Whereas in China, the, the regime officially uh, have derives its legitimacy from Mao. It hangs his, his picture off Tiananmen Square, and this is uh, this is doubly insidious. Not only because this is a gruesome mass murderer who killed 50 million people, more than anybody else in history, but Because his victims were the people of China, the people who are expected to um, bow down to his figure and respect him are his own victims, or the children of his victims. It would be like if a picture of Hitler hung off the Temple Mount in Israel or something, right? So, I mean, yeah, I guess maybe the question then is, how do the Chinese people who, this happened to the Chinese people in living memory. How are they okay with um, having the figure of Mao up on Tiananmen Square? But why is there still respect for Mao in China?
0: Well, first of all, um, China, as you said, is still a communist regime. Um, for many years, I mean, that was underplayed, partly because the memory is fresh Um, Partly in the 1980s and 90s, particularly. The memories were fresh. I think that was probably the main reason. Um, And uh, gradually after that, um, the memories of pain uh, were gradually fading. Um, And particularly a generation, two generations, have grown up without suffering. Um, And so given that there is no Religion for people to worship you know unlike any time in Chinese history, and before Mao there was Confucianism you you, you could have something to hang on to, and then there was mao maoism i mean which didn't um, didn't didn't obviously open it. Endorse violence and atrocities. And it could sound quite attractive, um, which is why Mao's Little Red Book was in vogue for a period in the West. Um, and so people hung on to that. And in the post Mao time, money was the god. But some people, a lot of people, made money, but a lot of people. Lost money, not only lost money, but had you know was um a disadvantaged in this money is God society. I mean, you know, in the society where there was no proper regulations and law, and people who were not very savvy with money lost out they were conned they were you know they were whatever so uh, there were some people who probably yearned for a more simple life where you know you were given what you were given you, you they wouldn't like to be starved and they wouldn't like to be a political victim but a lot of people could live a very simple life more of being just fed um, I mean, there may be a certain nostalgia, um, but the most important thing, of course, is the promotion of the regime. I mean, particularly since she came to power. I mean, you know, you were you were taught from school all these lies about Mao, um, and so people grew up with this um, um, regarding Mao as God. Like back to my childhood.
1: Yeah. How? What has been the impact of your books? You know, Wild Swans sold fifty million copies. Your biography Mao is also a bestseller. I, I know they're banned in China, but have they secretly been able to access? How has that revised their understanding of their own history?
0: Well, when these books were first published yeah. in nineteen the nineteen nineties and the year two thousands, there were lots of lots of lots and lots of ways to get them into China. Hong Kong, for example, and Taiwan, um, pirated editions, which there are many, many, many. Um, but now, I mean, since particularly Mr. Xi came to power in 20, like 2012, 2013, I mean, China has a total clampdown or of, banned, of banned literature, and you could go to jail. If you, um, and for an official um, to possess these books, I mean, banned books, including mine, you, you, you could face, you know, ghastly punishments, which you, you don't want to official, and for the general population as well. And when you enter China now, you see on this screen, uh, warnings of not to bringing bad literature. Um and not not particularly not to bringing um books that um, said not very nice things about the previous revolutionary leaders or or revolutionary martyrs or someone so total total clampdown forbidding of people doing research on history trying to understand the history um, uh, which um, which created another generation of brainwashed people. Mm-hmm. And there is one also one very important thing. The Chinese are very pragmatic and they don't want uh, trouble. They're very different from um, a lot of other peoples. Um, and uh, so parents who, who had bad experiences under Mao tend not to tell their children. And so there are a lot of children who were gen- just genuinely not getting any alternative information um, from different from the uh, from the official line.
1: Mm. Yeah, I do want to get back to the actual uh, Great Leap and uh, Cultural Revolution in a second, but on this theme, um, you know, Xi Jinping's own daughters got studied at Harvard. A bunch of Chinese elites are their kids are studying in America. Uh, when they take power in a generation or two, will they still be devoted Marxist-Leninists? I can't imagine them having coming back from Harvard and then uh, still believing in...
0: Well, I mean, in the West, in American universities, yeah, there are a lot of Marxists. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, a lot of people, if they're interested in the subject, sure. I mean, they come to the West to have their views confirmed. And Maoist, you know, for example, when our Mao biography was published, there were some academics who pub- even published a book, a collection of their criticisms against our book, and the title was, "Was Mao really a monster?" Yeah, I mean. You know, the preface was written by someone who was a senior lecturer in the LSE, London School of Economics. I mean, the language was Maoist language. You know, Mao was a great, a great uh, revolution, a great Marxist, Leninist, and so on. I mean, so, I mean, <laughs> I mean the West would certainly not put off. The, this um, put off a potential Mao uh, successor.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because I read that book actually in preparation for this interview and because I wanted to see if there were criticisms that I, I should be aware of. And uh, honestly, uh, the, I mean, there were certain quibbles about the, the part before Mao got into power about the Long March and stuff, which I don't know enough about to comment. But the actual, when they start talking about the important things, the great leap forward, the cultural revolution, they are not at all contesting the facts. They, it, it is the most, um, uh, the, the, the most sort of um, excusatory language of. It is the same sort of stuff, by the way, that is said about Cuba and Stalinist Russia. Of well, the literacy went up, and this and that. Um, North Korea today has high literacy. Are you going to say that North Korea was okay? That the actually, can you talk about this? What it, what do you think explains? the Western, uh, some parts of the left, who want to find excuses for these regimes, whether it's Venezuela or whether Edward Snow, Edward Snow writing his um, book about Mao, there's a sort of need to excuse these, um, these communist regimes and socialist regimes. Why are, what, what explains this?
0: From what I know, I think there, there were people who had illusions about these regimes. And a lot of the academics um, who were a kind of um, controlling the faculties um, to do with Mao and in the universities probably had got their. Um, they the sort of illusions because they had access to um, Edgar Snow's um, book. They were radicals in the 1960s. I mean, they, you know, they want to hang on to their own. No, sorry, let me just not get into the subject. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm faltering on this because I don't know. I don't know why, but I mean, I don't know why. I don't know why they are like that. I mean, they, they, they don't they don't know the facts. They, they, they don't care to know the facts. And also I think probably some people think, oh, China has always been awful, you know, under yeah. the emperors and so on. And so somehow the Orientals uh, must feel different today. Um, I, I know when, you know, when Deng Xiaoping, Visited America in 1979 and established diplomatic relations with America, um, with Carter, um, and um, he he was seated at the banquet with some uh, um, with some some deluded film star or mm-hmm. something, and then, then people were saying to him that when they were visit when they visited China. And they'd seen professors uh, who'd been subject to forced labor. Mm-hmm. And but they told they were told that they enjoyed it because all these hardships and being in the labor camp had turned them into the new men. Yeah. And Deng Xiaoping just said they were lying. Yeah. Um, but I mean they were lying. I mean to the Westerners. Um, who who didn't know the truth, just took their words for it. Yeah. Um, they, they didn't know people couldn't tell
1: them the real truth. Yeah. Even in, um, in the case of Stalin in Russia, there was a famous New York Times reporter who was doing the Russian coverage for uh, the New York Times. And the r- reports would come in about the, the, uh, the Ukrainian famine or these other atrocities, and he would write his columns. You know, no, this is not happening. I think there's a famous headline that says Russians are hungry but not starving. <laughs> um, oh, so actually, let's talk about uh, Deng Xiaoping. And I want to ask about so during the Cultural Revolution, he is exiled and purged, and. His, his son, because he is known as a, a I don't know what, the black, um, but basically. Well,
0: the, the five the, the blacks, uh, yeah. you know, that's one of the racist side of the of yeah. the Chinese society. Black is bad. Right. So the son was one of the five blacks.
1: Yeah.
0: And you know, so on.
1: His son is chased out of a window by red guards. Mm-hmm. The doctors refuse to operate on him because he's Deng Xiaoping's son. So he's paralyzed for life. Um, and he's forced to do manual labor, this guy who was basically kind of running China under Mao, he's doing manual labor out in the countryside. When he comes back into power after the Cultural Revolution, how, from the outside, I don't understand how he uh, doesn't immediately denounce Mao, talk about the horrible things he did. How how did he allow, there's a quote from him, he says, we must be careful not to overemphasize the crimes of Mao or something. For somebody who was so personally harmed by Mao, how is he not immediately condemning Mao?
0: This is something I don't understand. And I also think he made a big mistake. If he had dissociated from Mao, like Khrushchev had with Stalin, I mean, it would not have just been the right thing to do, but it would have been the popular thing to do because there is a great groundswell of the you know, sentiment for denouncing Mao, or at least as dissociating from Mao, not just from the population, from the victims, which virtually everybody was in China, but from the leading elite. From his co- most of his closest colleagues, I mean, for the a few elders who were in favor of Mao, he could easily have dealt with them, like uh, Khrushchev had dealt with the Stalinists, the hardliners. Yeah. But he chose not to. What got into his mind? I haven't studied him very carefully, but I I did know something about him. I think I think he he was probably. Thinking that if you reject Mao, it's inevitable that communism will collapse in China. I mean, unlike Khrushchev's time in 1956, he could denounce Stalin without endangering the communist rule in Russia. But Deng, at his time, could not, or at least probably he thought, could not have denounce the mao without endangering the rule of the party yeah it, because this we're talking about 1980s late 70s 80s now there is a ground you know it's near it's gorbachev's near gorbachev's yeah. time um, so i think that's probably his devotion to the party
1: yeah and but i think he, he might have been right in and then a, obviously the the point is that you would have been right to say that, well, this is actually inherent in the communist regime. In Russia, when, in the 80s, when they have uh, Glasnost and Perestroika, and they talk openly about the Gulag system, th- that is one of the main contributing factors. Then people say, well, how can a regime that allowed this to happen be allowed to exist anymore? How can this be a governing regime? And that does lead to the collapse.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Which is why, by the way, Mr. Xi's argument I mean, because he was against the Gorbachev, against yeah. the uh, perestroika and Glasnost, yeah. and he's, he's exactly that. I mean, the the communist regime would collapse. I mean, that is, you know, in today's terms, that is the wealth, the money, you know, that associated with the power.
1: Um, and in the book, you uh, you point out that Mao is acting in his. Uh, self-interest and selfishly doing all these things. But it, it seems to me that the, the, a strong, if not motivation, at least uh, enabling factor and organizing factor is definitely provided by the ideologies of communism and socialism, which um, w- which sort of organizes social society. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't make sense to collectivize farms and to close down shops. And uh, it, it also necessitates the uh, purges, because communism is a science. It has to work. And if it doesn't work, there must be internal capitalist saboteurs who must be you know, condemned, brought out, and killed. Do, do you think, that the, isn't it the communism and socialism at the heart of the, the, heart of the issue here?
0: I, th- I think some people would undoubtedly think that way. Yeah. But having researched Mao for 12 years, my conclusion about him was he was highly pragmatic, and the communist ideology suited him. Um, I mean, he joined the Communist Party, not because he was a passionate believer, but because it gave him a livelihood. I mean, he was asked to open a left-wing bookshop selling communist and left-wing literature, and his life was changed. And before that, he was poverty-stricken, and uh, and then and then that started his life. But I mean, the few things about the ideology that you just mentioned, for example, the collectivization, yeah. it's highly conducive to Mao's requirements yeah. to Mao's what Mao wanted, which was food. He wanted this food from the peasants. If they had been private farmers, they would farm their food first and and pay tax, so to speak, pay to them. And then it's far more difficult to control these hundreds of millions of peasants than to organize them into units, into communes, um, well, then it's much better to control. I and mean, Mao said so himself. They are the the, the the you know they um, say the great advantage of collectivization, the communes, is easier to control. Guan Li. So this was um, not just an ideology, abstract ideology, but it's for you know for what he wanted to get.
1: Yeah, but then at least we can say the, the, the one of the problems with the ideology is that it attracts and is highly conducive to, to um, opportunists like Mao and Stalin and uh, the Kim family. But so let, let's go back to the Great Leap Forward and, and to these communes. The, these communes are really what it's like to be a peasant is like chattel slavery. Can you talk about the working conditions, how hard they worked while not being given food? Um, the punishments t- t- tell us more about what, what the peasant life was like.
0: Well, I was working in the commune for yeah. several years in the in Cultural Revolution in two places, and our lives consisted mainly of work. I mean, there were fixed hours, you were given. You were allocated uh, food and, and you know fuel and other things uh, depending on how many hours you worked uh, so so your life is is centered on work I mean you know then um, everything the, the commune controlled everything if you want to travel to go somewhere you need the commune to give you um, a kind of a, a note, a kind of a passport to allow you to travel. Um, if you want to get married, you have to get permission from the commune. And during the famine, this is how Mao ensured that the peasants didn't rise up in arms because of the control from the commune. I mean, there is a thing um, they, every now and then the regime would Would issue these stiff orders to stop peasants fleeing their villages. I mean, if the peasants did manage to flee into the cities and beg, for example, for some food, the communes were told to get them back. So the commune is is this thing we to control to control our entire lives. And of course, when I was in the communes, I was, again, in a privileged position because when we were sent down from the cities, we were guaranteed a certain food. I mean, it's too complicated, the details. But basically, the, the communes is, is the organization. It may be in some ideology, but in reality, it's how the party controls China's 500 million peasants. I mean, there were only, I think, some, some, a few tens of thousands of communes. I mean, imagine this highly concentrated organization. Yeah. So people were not, no longer individual farmers Yeah. Like, um, like what they were before the communist rule.
1: And this is exactly also what happened in Russia. And, in the, you, what, and when the famine happens, again, they're not allowed to leave Ukraine. They, they're forced, they're, those roadblocks, so they're forced to starve there. Um, so you, uh, you have this really remarkable anecdote in the, uh, in the book about um, talking to these peasants about what um, life was like during the Great Leap Forward while, while you're working there. Because now there's no fuel left. All the trees are taken down. And how, at the time, so many in the village starved, the you, because they were all distracted keeping the furnaces. Talk about the how the the, the effort to double steel output and how, how that what, what, what cat- catastrophes that caused.
0: Well, basically, um, Mao's ambition after he took power in China was to build a superpower yeah. to to um, dominate the world. He needed to buy these machines, military industrial complexes, mainly from Russia and from Eastern Europe. But he didn't have the money to pay. China wasn't rich as today. So he exported the food. So he needed a lot of food. Whereas in China, traditionally, we, didn't, we never produced enough food to feed the population. The emperors and food export and bought a lot of food into China. I mean, so traditionally China was a food importer for a few hundred years and Mao stopped that. So to start with, there was always a food problem throughout his rule. Um, And now the Great Leap is basically... To import vast quantities of uh, technology and equipment, mainly from Russia, that's why it's called the Great Leap. He wanted to build industrialized, uh, whatever system, um, in in a few years, um, f- to be fast, fast, fast. You know that that's what he uh, what uh, he said. I mean, that's why his demand for food was vastly elevated. Mao's demand for food. And this food had to come from the peasants. I mean, so he basically seized this food to, to export to Russia and the Eastern Europe, knowing his people would die of starvation. Um, there was a time Mao well, kept saying, seemingly philosophically, I mean, death is a good thing. If, if we don't have death, you know, um, we, and the, the earth can't contain us. You know, these seemingly philosophical things were, were taken at face value by some academics, uh, you, you know. But what he really, he said these things to his officials in order to harden their heart when they went to seize the food from the peasants, seeing how pitiful their conditions were. And that's the origin of the famine. It's as simple as that, it's food export. I mean, Liu Shaoqi, his number two and his main target in the Cultural Revolution. It was thanks to a visit back to his old village that made up his mind to stop Mao's policies because he went back to his village his brother-in-law had died of starvation his sister was on the edge of of dying of starvation he saw the villages saw the just heart-rending things and he he you know, he opened them opened the lid of of a of a wok a saucepan and he saw there was nothing just water a few drops of grain and he was he he did a very unusual thing, and he bowed to the peasants and said, you know, I'm very sorry. Uh, it was after this, in 1961, he made up his mind to stop Mao's policies, which led to the Cultural Revolution and his, his tragic death.
1: And then oh, you, you also talk in the book about how Th- these peasants, not only was all this grain being exported which caused them to starve, but they weren't even allowed to harvest their grain because they had to... T- talk about the, the turning their own walks and their own stuff into iron and you just spending yeah. time doing that instead of farming.
0: So Mao was, Mao was partly defeated by his own ignorance about economy. I mean, because if you when you, when you want to build a modern super industry, you needed the steel, and steel was the most important thing. And China's steel producing capacities in the 1950s was very low. So he had this idea of making the whole population to to make steel. I mean, it's it really is quite ridiculous because I was a primary school I was six years old I was in the primary school and I remember that my main occupation was somehow my contribution to steel which is every day we walked on the street trying to find the little nails the cogs something to steel, to and to hand in to our teachers because there is a backyard furnace in our school all the teachers had to had to feed feed things into the furnace because the furnace also had to be kept going 24 hours a day it couldn't be you know it couldn't go off i mean to feed that furnace consumed everything i mean in my village i mean they we we struggled every day to find a little fuel well, you know fast forwarding to 1960s and because the mountains which used to be covered with Great trees have been laid bare for for the fuel to feed the backyard furnaces, Um, and the teachers were um, exhausted in my school, and so we were organized to babysit for them. When I was a child, um, it was just it was hugely wasteful, hugely wasteful. I mean, this I mean because for all this effort. Um, This was 1958, Um, actually, most of what the backyard furnaces uh, um, produced were completely useless. So he died, Mao died, thinking of himself as a failure, because China was still poverty-stricken at the time of his death. And he felt himself a failure, but he was partly sabotaged by his own ignorance about the economy. Oh, the other thing about mouse ignorance was because food was so important and because sparrows yeah. eat food, so he ordered the whole population to yeah. to, to, um, to, to kill sparrows. Mm-hmm. So as a child, I sat with other people in our know, courtyard. We beat the saucepans to make a tremendous thing. So the um, sparrows... Will will drop on the on the ground, and so the, the all these people will will go and um, will will, um, will will go and catch the sparrows, and uh, it was just catastrophe because it not only killed the sparrows but many other birds, other birds as well, uh, and uh, and of course the the the, the worms, the pests, uh, insects, pests, they were uh, they flourished. Without their, their natural enemy, yeah. um, so it's 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 the it's an unbelievable situation um, that has consumed China for you know more than two decades.
1: Yeah. Just, just the complete lack of sense here. It would honestly be a, be a joke if, it, if obviously you didn't know it led to forty million deaths. Mm-hmm.
0: But the thing is, um, you know, in the West, I I indirectly know somebody who was a uh, was a steel um, magnet. Yeah, uh, was a great uh, steel producer, and he thought Mao's um, steel backyard furnaces were a brilliant idea. I mean, talking about you know, people in the West, uh, not just the academics, but many yeah. other people completely irrational. Um, and I think maybe in their, in their eagerness to, to find an alternative to the Western um, capitalist democracy.
1: Mm. So say more about that. I, I know we did touch on that earlier when we were discussing, you know, why are people still defending Mao? But what motivated at the time and even still now, mm-hmm. Uh, were people were so disillusioned with Western capitalism that they thought they would rather have Mao?
0: I think there were a lot of people like that, I th- with a young generation. I mean, yeah. they grew up um, after the collapse of the Soviet empire. I mean, a lot of facts yeah. have come out. Um, so people are no longer probably so starry-eyed and so wishful thinking yeah. about the communist regimes. But there was a time in those years, in know um, in the, when, when communism seemed to be going strong in so many countries, um, a lot of there were a lot of wishful thinking Westerners. Um, as I said, they may be pursuing for a, for an alternative to a society they have a lot of discontent with. Yeah. I mean, so they so wanted for such a miracle to happen. And they, they believed in what in there otherwise might have rejected as, uh, as fantasy.
1: Yeah, as, speaking of which, tomorrow I'm interviewing uh, Neil Ferguson, who has written a biography, volume one of his biography of Kissinger, and volume two, which will cover this period, will, will come out later, he's writing it right now. What, what should Kissinger have done differently? Should, should, should they not have tried to open up China? Uh, under Mao, what, what should have been the policy of the United States at the time?
0: China was not opened up by Kissinger and Nixon. I, I lived in China then. I knew after Nixon and Kissinger's visit um, in 1971-72, China was not opened up. Um, I mean, all the liberalization, see, you know, relaxation after... Nixon's visit, was mainly because of the collapse of Lin Biel, mm-hmm. and Mao lost his, um, his arm with which he controlled the army. So I think to say Nixon and Kissinger opened up China mm-hmm. is wrong. That's not the case. Kissinger, I think Kissinger is a very, very smart person. I think he probably was too fascinated with power. I mean, Mao had the kind of power. He could turn the lives upside down um, of a a quarter of a million of the world's population. I think he was very fascinated with Mao. I mean, he said nice things about Mao. um, And even um, after Mao died, you know, with uh, the regime... um, was reviving Mao. There were a few people reviving Mao, like the current Mr. Xi and his political rival, Mr. Bo, um, who uh, with whom Kissinger seemed to be very close. He attended these rallies um, to eulogize Mao, yeah. big rallies, and lend- lending his, his whatever status he had um, to the Chinese regime's effort to stick with Mao's legacy, um, I think that's unforgivable. Yeah, that's one thing, and the other thing is China's opening up to the West, and that happened only after Mao died in 1976, and Deng Xiaoping came to power. I knew this very well because I was one of the first Chinese to be able to leave China um, in 1978. I mean to see. You know, that's the very beginning of the opening up. I think it's a good thing. I mean, China has grown. I mean, you know, sort of ditching Mao's um, economic lunacy and the ideology um, that has wrecked China. And um, the Chinese people are leading a much better life today. And all this could not have happened if the country had not opened up. And also, through all this contact with the West, any attempt to go back to the Maoist time would be futile, right. because the people knew what the West was like. Mm-hmm. The people don't want to be, really don't want to be isolated again. Um, to lead a life of Mao's time, no matter how they may say they worship the Mao, how matter, no matter how they may make prim- pilgrimages yeah. to Mao's birthplace and so on. But deep down, I think nobody wants to go back. So I think that's a very good thing, this opening up. Mm-hmm. But of course, then it country may grow into a menace to the world. I mean, that's another matter. Yeah, it's a challenge yeah. that the world needs to face now. But it's certainly not to make um, to um, to. It's not certainly not true to, to say China shouldn't. We shouldn't have the West shouldn't have allowed China to open up.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you can't just dismiss a billion people coming out of poverty. That's yes, it's, exactly. a, it's the best thing that's ever happened in history.
0: Exactly.
1: So let's go back to the Cultural Revolution. One thing that I find really interesting about communism, especially in China, is the need for the victims to then incriminate themselves, to confess. When when, even Hitler wouldn't have the the Jews in Auschwitz, uh, you know, talk about uh, renouncing their Semitic ways. And, you know, I've been an enemy to Germany in World War One. So what what was uh, explain why it was important that the victims of these purges had to then talk about, oh, you know, I'm guilty, I'm complicit. Why couldn't they just be ostracized?
0: I I think Mao knows people's psychology um, very well. Um, and um, I, I think he uses this as a weapon to break people. I mean, to humiliate them and to break them. I mean, so even his opponents then started to grow doubt about their own opposition. So I, I think that's the main thing. I mean, it. I tell you, it's, it's not very nice. I mean, in China, when I lived in China, I wasn't denounced, but we all had to attend criticism and self-criticism meetings. I mean, it really is stirs up some very basic discomfort mm-hmm. and um, unsettling, upset feelings. If you have to criticize yourself, I mean, you know, not do it cynically because you have to win. Our days, it's not, you, you couldn't do it cynically because nobody has reason to understand the whole thing in order to be cynical. Yeah. So you are starting with being quite sincere. I mean, so it's it, it certainly breaks people. And also it makes people deny, it makes people turn people against each other because when people yeah. are criticizing each other, you create a lot of animosities among the people, which is one reason why no opposition can get organized. Mm-hmm. I mean, people can't, uh, don't dare to to um, talk to each other in case they were denounced. Yeah. I mean, um, in case they were, it's all it's a very it's a psychological warfare right. against his own population, which is quite effective.
1: So, so meaning that it wasn't just a campaign against political opposition. It was literally every part of your life. Yes. I I think even in the the book, you talk about embracing your family is anti Maoist because it shows you're closer to your family than you are to Mao.
0: Exactly. It's this warm feeling (laughs) is just, I mean, you know, I, I was constantly criticized of. Um, because of my feelings for my family. And Deng Deng Xiaoping, when he wrote to Mao about his son, the son you talked about, who was crippled, he wrote to Mao to ask Mao to allow his son to join him so he could look after his son, he and his wife, uh, who was so heartbroken seeing his son, she wanted to kill herself. Anyway, um, Deng had to preface his appeal with, I'm afraid, you know, I'm committing warm feelingism. But could you allow, you know, my son to join me to be looked after?
1: Yeah. It's It's,
0: it's a device that really separates society and and making people against each other and being on guard against each other.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, earlier you were talking about why can't people get together? Right. Because, I mean, this other person at the next criticism or self-criticism meetings could well say, so-and-so had said this to me and I hadn't reported to the party, therefore I'm guilty.
1: And talk talk about the way in which it forced good people to be immoral. You have these quota systems where if you're in charge of a department or something, Mao says 5% are rightists, 5% are capitalist voters. And so, if you don't bring, if you don't give five percent of names who are capitalists, we're going to get denounced. Then, uh, then you must be a rightist yourself. Uh, to talk talk about how how th- that aspect of the system.
0: Well, I mean, you. It's the result is you are in a tremendous um, dilemma yeah. of uh, either sacrificing you, your family, and um, and other people. I mean, which is another way of breaking these people. I mean. That these are all his his weapons, psychological weapons, mm-hmm. to force people to do what he ordered them to do.
1: Well, why was there such a big reservoir of uh, of support for uh, communist ideas and also the personality cult that formed around Mao in China? Um, what, what what you know? People give different explanations of. The emperor worship beforehand led to this, or peasant uh, rice farming. What, what explains why China uh, got taken over by this ideology?
0: It's, again, not, not an ideology. Right. And Mao himself said in 1923, he didn't believe that the Chinese would go for communism. I mean, he thought um, that communism could only be brought to China by the Russian Red Army. And he was Right. I mean, in the earlier years, what the commun the, the you know, the, the Moscow's representatives to China and to other countries, and said it was China was the last course. Uh, people didn't were the last people to go for communism. I mean, much easier in India, for example. Um, so Mao was wise because after the war, uh, uh, the Second World War the Russian army, Red Army, invaded China and occupied the north and northeast of China, a large hunk of land that was more than the entire Eastern Europe. So with this, this land, Stalin and supported Mao right. to, to fight a war against the Chiang Kai-shek, I mean, Mao, of course, was the, was also, Mao was the main, main man who ensured his success um, because during the war against Japan, all his colleagues wanted to fight Japan. And Mao was the only person who was against it and tried everything he could to take advantage of the war, which destroyed Chiang Kai-shek's government, whereas Mao grew, the red grew during the war. And so Mao was very smart. And this is one reason why Deng Xiaoping and a lot of other communist leaders um, were so totally devoted to Mao, because they realized if it were not for Mao, they would never have come to power.
1: Right. Well, uh, by the way, what do you make of the analogies people make uh, when they say what happened in uh, the U.S. and, uh, you know, other countries a couple of years ago? With, with the BLM movement?
0: Of course, it's not, it's not at all comparable. Right. Um, I mean, the Cultural Revolution, I mean, I think it, maybe people just saw statues being toppled. Right. Uh, I don't know what else. I mean, you know, a few yeah. things, superficial things. The Cultural Revolution was nothing like that. I mean, nobody could, you know, you couldn't even comprehend the horror of the Cultural Revolution in the society the fear the destruction i mean you know china is really totally destroyed i mean there was no antiquity in the private hands you know wiped out taken by the uh, by the regime I, I just it's nothing like that you know for 10 years yeah. um, there were no books no cinemas, no theatres. Um, I mean, my mother was in, uh, cinemas and theatres were turned into um, prisons and torture chambers, and my mother was imprisoned in one. And, um, you know, I knew how to get hold of one book. I mean, it was how difficult and how much, how, how impossible that was. And we, that was the 10 years of the Cultural Revolution. Um, it's nothing like what happened in the West.
1: Hey everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode. As always, the most helpful thing you can do is just share the podcast, send it to people you think might enjoy it, put it in Twitter, your group chats, etc. just blitz the world. Appreciate you listening. I'll see you next time. Cheers.